Good morning. For those of you who weren't here, we had a great discussion last week, and I edited the audio like I always do, and I just want to commend you, the class. There was so much quality discussion, great insights in scriptures. There were just too many astute readings to give everybody the, <laughs> the reward. It was really good. It was great Sunday school. That's what we want to do. This is where we encourage one another and uh, admonish one another and learn and grow together. So that's what it's all about. We're still on the same PowerPoint. So I'm going to go to verse 23. And we have a little aside we're going to do about what happened to those three years that are missing in Acts. Okay? And... That'll be a good discussion, I believe. And then we want to go to this, back to this issue. We don't, we do not know what cannot be known. We started that last time. And if we get all that done, I have another PowerPoint I can start. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here and for the fellowship of the saints and the wonderful blessings that you give us. We pray that we can understand and learn and grow, be encouraged, and believe your promises that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're covering this pericope. We left off on verse 22. We, we did cover this. Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Last week, we talked about Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of David. And we looked at scriptures about that. The audio is on the website if you weren't here and you want to access that. Now we come to verse 23, and here's our mysterious phrase that in Galatians covers three years. And and after that, many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. And then what happens is they lower him in a basket. Now, one of the perennial questions that's arisen over the years is Galatians tells us that Paul spent three years. Could you look that up in Galatians? Starts Galatians 1.17. Eric and I are going to discuss that. Yeah, so here's Galatians 1. I'll start in verse 17. It says, um, this is Paul. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then in verse 18, he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And then he says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's. I mentioned last week that this used to be considered, oh, this is a big problem. It's as if Acts disagrees with Galatians. But nowadays, understanding how we interpret written material 
it's not the big problem people thought it was. Partly because we have a better understanding of the book of Acts. When a biblical author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they still have their own style and they still have their own purpose. Okay? And we often speak of authorial intent. Luke's purpose is laid out in Luke Acts in a couple key verses. In Luke, it's four, Luke 4.18. In Acts, it's Acts 1.8. Luke wants to tell us how God's purpose in Christ was fulfilled through the incarnation, through fulfilling of prophecies, through the things that Jesus said and did, and then through the apostles he appointed. And Acts 1.8 is saying that you be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other most parts of the earth. We've already noticed that that's not necessarily chronological because already the gospel's gone to the othermost parts of the earth through the Ethiopian. Okay? And Ethiopia was considered the end of the earth back in those days. Luke's purpose is not to give a biographical description of Paul's entire life. He never said that's what he was doing, and it doesn't necessarily fit Luke's purpose to do that. Now, in Galatians, Paul's purpose is to show that the gospel he received, which is the same one, came directly from Christ himself, and that Paul himself does fit the criteria of what is necessary to be an apostle, including two things we're going to say. One, having seen the resurrected Christ. Number two, been personally taught by him. That's the one some people neglect. So in Galatians, Paul has his purpose. In Acts, Luke has his. Now, we should know by now how history is written. Any history doesn't necessarily follow chronology. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Somebody might try to do that, but it's pretty rare that history is ever written that way. Think of the different histories of America that you can read. One of my favorite, it's not a Christian book, it's a secular one, but it's a great book. It's called Hellfire Nation. And it describes American history from the perspective of religious revivals and how our debates throughout American history have been religious debates. And it's a very fascinating book because it shows that both the right and the left are motivated by religion. Different kinds, different ways but religion. One group is saying, if we're going to be a Christian nation, 
we've got to be socialist or something like it. We've got to take money and give it to the poor. And the other group is saying, if we're going to be a Christian nation, we need to follow the moral law of God revealed in the Bible. And it's an, just a fascinating book. But it doesn't just say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Most do not. Sometimes things are laid out thematically. This president and, let's say you're going to have a history of President Lincoln. You might say different things about what he dealt with in his lifetime. So claiming that everything has to be, number one, exhaustive, number two, absolutely chronological is an artificial way of saying it. It's just not how history is written. What was it John has said? If you had all the world's books, wouldn't hold it all? It's telling what God intended to tell us through real spirit-inspired authors writing, using their own styles, and having their own purposes. So understanding authorial intent something that I really got a good grasp on when I was in seminary because I happened to have some great teachers really has helped me. I think it'll help you too. What's Luke trying to tell us? What we think we want to know isn't necessarily what Luke is trying to tell us. He's telling us how the gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world through spirit anointed, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, spirit anointed witnesses who confess Christ. That's what Luke's saying. So there's no problem that when it says after that many days were fulfilled, it doesn't matter to us because there's a gap in there. Now, I want Eric to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, some years ago, the reason this is kind of relevant to our discussion, some years ago, Bob and I were defining what are the criteria for an apostle. And we came up with four criteria. Number one, you had to be called. Remember, Paul says that typically in the first verse of his epistles. Uh, Number two, you did miraculous deeds. We would cite the book of Hebrews, Acts chapter 5. The third thing, as Bob mentioned, is you are an eyewitness to the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, for, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 15 as well. But the fourth criteria is that you had to be personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just show you where that's found. If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, you'll see where this criteria of being personally instructed by Christ that Bob was alluding to come about. It's 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 21. In Acts one twenty-one, here, remember, Peter is talking about replacing Judas who had perished. He cites Psalm 69, 25, let another take his office. And then he says this, Acts one twenty one. he says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism, notice the baptism, that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, there's the ascension, One of these men must. Now, everyone see the must? That's day in Greek. That's the divine necessity. And I think Peter's claiming this is the divine necessity that one of these men must become with us witnesses to his resurrection. So to Peter, the apostle, a necessary criteria 
to replace Judas was that you were with Christ during his earthly ministry. Now, we know that earthly ministry was for three years. So the question that Bob and I had in our mind was, well, then how does the Apostle Paul fulfill this criteria, being that he was never with Christ during his earthly ministry? Are you with me? Well, the answer, I think, is found in Galatians that we just read, where Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says that he was with Jesus and received revelation for how long? For three years. And the point is then, he was personally instructed for three years by Jesus Christ, just as the other apostles would have been as well. So just as the apostle Paul saw Christ's resurrection at a later date, he was also personally instructed for three years at a later date, but he was brought up to the same standard as the other apostles. And that's why this became a big issue for, for Bob and me to wrestle with. Hope that helps. Yeah. There's a couple of reasons this became important to Eric and I. One of them, Eric, while, you, while I'm talking, could you go to Acts 26, 14 to 18? We had these Latter-day Apostles that we debated who claimed that there are many apostles. Remember the latter rain movement came along in the 1940s and then it turned into different things. And then some people created this restoration scenario. God's restoring things to the church that were lost. And one of the last things is apostles. So there are literally thousands of apostles running around the world claiming they speak for God. But if this criteria is necessary for being an authoritative apostle, then none of them can qualify. And I just thought of another passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, there's a series. Levon, could you look up 1 Corinthians 15? And there's a series in the beginning of that that says... And then, and then, and then, and then last of all. Grammatically, that means the last, and that's it. So after Paul, there's no more apostles. Verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of, the, out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, so read a little before that, like 6 and 7 if need, need be. You, verse 3 is, for I delivered to you first of all. Do you want that? Go ahead. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Right. So what we have here is appearances, and then last of all, we have Paul. Okay, now, go ahead and read that section at the end of Acts. Yeah, and I'm sorry, just one thing before I do that. Um, just Galatians 1.12 also fills in a little bit of information here where Paul specifically says about where his gospel came from. It didn't come from man. If you jot down Galatians 1.6, Paul says, For I did not receive it from any man, 
nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is claiming that he was instructed by Christ, I believe. And what's interesting, just a few verses later, he mentions the three years. So now in Acts 26, verses 14 through 18, Bob? 14 through 18. It says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. There's the one I'm looking for. He would appear again. Yeah. So the reason that's significant, I just saw this. I was right, I'm writing a CIC article yeah. this last week. And one of my, my main texts is Acts 26, 18, right. about changing domains. But here's why that's interesting. Because you can't say that the appearance narrated in Acts 9 exhausts it. The only thing Paul ever saw was that one time. But there, very little was said to him. But it says in Acts 26, what verse was that? 16. 16, that I will appear to you. So when Jesus first appeared to Paul, he promised he would do so again. So that has just been very, very profound, helping me understand how we got the New Testament. I was thinking that... <clears throat> The apostles, there was a certain level of, uh, there was some infighting. Like, who is the greatest? They were saying that. In fact, didn't one of the apostles' mother even kind of get in there with Jesus and say, you know, put in a good word for her son? So the intensity of Paul's training being one-on-one with Jesus, you would think that that would be a, a, a far greater well, I don't want to say that. Let me backtrack on that. But it would be just more intense training uh, rather than with the big, large groups and crowds when the uh, other apostles. Does that make sense? Well, what, one of the things that's so interesting about this, now remember, Moses went up on Sinai, and he didn't just have thoughts in his mind. In other words, Moses wasn't in a cave somewhere getting revelations. Who came down on Sinai? The Lord. Who spoke? The Lord. So, and Moses in Deuteronomy 18 promised that God would raise up a prophet like him. And when he did, we should listen to him. And... The Gospels claim that's Jesus, and even God himself identified that on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One of you mentioned that last week. So there's an objectivity to Jesus teaching the apostles. And we don't, I, sometimes I think, give enough credence to how significant that is. So John for example, spent those three years 
physically with the incarnate Lord being taught exactly what's right and true and then later wrote to the church. Paul also received from the Lord what he delivered to us. But there's an objectivity to that. So these apostles running around today are claiming whatever they have just came into their mind. Although there are actually some claiming they went to heaven and talked to dead people. Oh, yes. And in some of my articles I wrote back in the 90s, I referenced these guys. And one of the interesting things about these guys visiting heaven, when they get there, whoever they're talking to is apologizing about the Bible. For example, was this Jesse Duplantis? I think it was him. Jesse Duplantis went to heaven, so he says, talked to David, and David was saying some of those psalms weren't so great because I wrote them when I was having a bad day. A bad day? Now, why would David in heaven apologize to Jesse Duplantis? Because the word of faith doesn't believe in being negative. And we have lament psalms, right? Now, our claim is that after Paul, last of all, there are no more apostles. Okay? Sitting in a cave by yourself, getting mystical impressions is not going to give you the truth. It comes from the Bible. Now, does that make sense? I've been teaching this for some time. I know, you know, others will say that Paul just kind of got revelations. But I think he heard directly from the Lord. Any more to say about that, Eric? No, I think you're exactly right. And I think that uh, Acts 20... 616 goes a long ways in showing that these were personal revelations. And I think we do see... I will appear to you. Exactly. He's claiming it. So we're not taking that... Um, we're taking it from Scripture. So Yeah, including those requirements. So Paul's purpose in Galatians was to refute people who say, well, you're not a real apostle. You're a second-hand one. And he said, no, I'm directly appointed by Christ, just like the others. Okay. Now it says here in Acts 9.23, after that many days were fulfilled. Fulfilled is plerao in the passive, which denotes completed. And I believe that this is an allusion to God's purposes. There, God has a purpose here that's happening. And... Luke 9.51 says, this is, I'm just looking at how Luke uses plerao. Luke 9.51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The word approaching is sum plerao. We have a prefix. We're coming together and fulfilled, so, so to speak. And so that's how Luke writes. That's what he's saying. I, I bet, oh, man, 
what a great week I've had writing. Just oh, it's, it's been. A, oh, you know, I think, I think, I think, I think, and meditate on an idea. I'm writing this article called Two Domain Theology," and I was in Luke one and two, and that's what Luke is telling us. This is the time. God appears to witnesses. There's angelic visitations, and there are people, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, like Zacharias, and they prophesy. So God is at work fulfilling his purposes. It says in Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does it mean that the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled? Now, some people say God's all done with Israel and Jerusalem. Nothing more is going to happen. In debating that with some people, I've said there's no until for a non-event. You have any comment on Luke twenty-one twenty-four until until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled? You know, well said, Bob. I like your logic there. Um, one thing I would share was something that Jim Palmer used to say to us. Um, he'd always say, "Remember, he had that little bit of a Southern accent." He'd say, "Eric, if the first sixty-nine weeks were about Israel, what do you think the seventieth is about?" And um, if you read Daniel chapter 9, remember Daniel's prayer that needs to be resolved. He pleads and he says, oh, Lord, your people and your city are called by your name. Well, he's talking about Israel. It's Israel-centric. And so the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And when the 70th week, the parousia comes, God turns his attention again to taking Israel back out from underneath the demonic realm. And uh, he will bring salvation to them. One day all Israel will be saved. Uh, we see in Romans eleven twenty six. So, Eric, yes, I had had a question actually. Now the word fulfilled, when Jesus came to fulfill the law, is that the same Greek word? There? Uh, somebody can quick look that up. Maybe Adam. Can. I, I'm, I'm just. I honestly don't, I don't know have the my answer. Greek text open right now. We could defer for now if we but don't. Go, could you while you have the mic going, turn to Acts seven thirty and read that. Acts seven thirty three, yes. okay. Play rounds. Is, uh, okay, means to fill. Um, Go ahead. For Acts seven verse thirty three, for John the Baptist. Thirty. Oh, thirty. Okay, sorry. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That doesn't sound That's not right. The right verse. Oh, 20s. Acts 7 and verse 30. Oh, you know what? I was in Luke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, that was a good verse, yeah. too. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's all good. It's all the Bible, you it know. It talks about God's purpose. So. <laughs> okay, here we go. I got some, uh, some help here from somebody. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Okay, that was uh, Moses. Yeah. The word passed is also from uh, Plerao. Okay. Is the root. Did you learn anything, Adam? No, I, I still remember Dr. Bob. 
It's a different word. Okay, there's more than one way of saying the same thing. So, thank you. Now, why is this important? If you want to really have a great learning experience, just read Luke Acts with, in the back of your mind, this is a two-volume work by one author that's intended to be together. Luke, then Acts. All right? One of the reasons we can really know that, well, Luke says that. It's all we need to know. But there are narrative threads that are in Luke that don't find their finishing until Acts. So Luke, if you're reading this, you're kind of hanging there, Acts fills it out. That's Luke's idea. So if you want the gloriousness of Luke chapter 1 and 2, it's amazing to me how this is written. And God's time, kairos, is being fulfilled. And I've been looking at this word visitation. I did a bunch of study on that last night. And Jesus laments that Jerusalem did not recognize the day of visitation. But God has visited his people, it's said. Now, actually, Adam, I asked him to, to look at some of it. I spent about over an hour last night reading Kittle myself. I think I got most of it. I can't read the Hebrew, but with Logos, you click it and tell you what it says. And uh, visitation is an amazing concept. It was used throughout the Greek Old Testament, and it had a range of meaning. But it basically can mean oversight or a visitation of God that's going to result either in salvation or judgment. Okay? And Peter talks about the future day of visitation that's coming. That's going to be judgment. But when Jesus came, in his person is a visitation of God. And one of the ways it's used, kind of anthropomorphically, is God comes down to do an inspection. You see that in the Old Testament. And so when God does an inspection, he's going to see, okay, what's going on here? It would be somewhat like an earthly ruler wanted to know, let's say you're from Minnesota and you're Washington, come back, what's going on? And, uh, but this is even greater. So there's an inspection. Jesus comes, and God is visiting his people. And a theme in Luke X, and I can't tell you how much I love Luke X, been preaching, I started preaching it in 2005 or whatever, a theme is that the visitation is only salvific for some people, the ones who believe. And what's really amazing is the ones who recognize the day of visitation are ones nobody would ever expect. The people that nobody thought I had anything going for them. Acts 7 They're having a banquet. 
at a religious leader's house and an immoral woman comes in and she's behaving in a very uncomely way, offending everybody, weeping on Jesus' feet, using your hair to wipe the tears. I remember when I preached on this one. And what does Jesus pronounce for the woman? Forgiveness of sins. The visitation is recognized by an immoral street woman, but not by the leaders of Israel. That's what's so amazing. And the visitation is recognized by people in Acts that aren't who you would think. We can direct people. You did a CIC article. I'm going to write it. 4,000 words of it are on my computer. And I backed it up. I'm going to try to finish it. it's, It's just flowing off of my fingers from all these scriptures. So I'm going to talk about the fact that two domains, two spiritual domains... John, I use John, 1 John a lot in the article. And if you don't do anything else, if all you do is live on the earth and you do nothing else, you are in the domain of darkness. Nothing more is necessary. Stay where you are. You're in a spiritual domain, even if you're a materialist atheist. You're in the domain of darkness. But the visitation means that what I like Tannehill, he's got the best material on Luke Acts as a two-volume work, Robert Tannehill. He calls, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he uses the term the reign of God. And here's why I kind of like that. As soon as we think of kingdom, we're thinking geographical boundaries, armies, and, and some kind of a ruler. Remember, I start the article with Pilate. Jesus before Pilate. Are your servants going to take up swords and fight? Because Pilate heard that there was this kingdom thing going on. And so Pilate says to Jesus, he asked him about it. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not from here. Literally, in the Greek. But, well, the NASB has not from this realm. So, he said, I came to bear witness of the truth. So, there really is a kingdom. No, Jesus answered Pilate, you said it. And he came to bear witness of the truth. What did Pilate say? What is truth? In other words, I'm not even worried. I don't think my kingdom... Or my governance, he wasn't the emperor, he was the governor, is going to be threatened by your truth. Have all the truth you want, I'll take the army, and we'll both be happy. Are you following me? The domain of God, the reign of God, invaded earth in order that people could go from darkness to light. You were in Acts 26. Go ahead now and read verse 28. This is what Jesus told Paul would be the result of Paul's ministry after having met the resurrected Christ. Acts 26, 18. 
says it's to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Exactly. Wow. That's the key verse. And so that idea started in early in Luke and finds its end late in Acts. People who believe in Christ exit darkness and enter the light. They, end, they exit the kingdom of Satan and enter the kingdom or the reign of God, even though there's no physical boundaries. Yes. Uh, I have an NASB version, and rather than power, in mine it has dominion, which comes into this idea that you're either in, you're either abiding with Christ or in the dominion of darkness. And yeah. I'm not sure the what Greek the Greek word is exousia, but it means authority. Okay. So I like how Tannehill uses the reign of God because it's something you can enter without changing geographical location. Now, it's not that the kingdom of God means anything different, but we think of a kingdom as boundaries. Bob, that's a great point. Um, and remember the parable of the sower. One of the points that Jesus makes is that this kingdom is being built imperceptibly to man. It's not being built by an army invading, as Bob is saying, but the reign of God begins here within the human being that's a regenerate who comes to faith in Christ. And so the difference isn't a kingdom being taken over by another, but by people who are changed from the inside out, where the reign of God comes here. Well, one day he's coming bodily to bring a reign to the earth, and that's why you see even in Revelation chapter 5, the angels say, and they shall reign upon the earth. So there will be one day a locale for the kingdom, but for now, the reign is within individual. It's a spiritual domain. Now, the Bible says this a whole bunch of different ways. First John is full of it. Notice those slides I've been making in First John. Children of God are children of the devil. Passed over, using a word that can mean, mean going from one physical location to another, but when it's used spiritually, passed over from death to life. Many times in Luke Acts, this domain, this authority, this realm, this kingdom is linked to forgiveness of sins. One thing that's clear, that's what's in Acts 26, 18. Luke 7, your sins are forgiven. What's this? Let me give you a little preview. Here's somebody. They want to get this guy healed. He's lame. And they go through all kinds of trouble to get this guy to Jesus, because they know Jesus is there. They saw him. He did miracles. He'll heal this guy. We can just get him there. So remember, they lowered him down. What happened? What did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Oh. <laughs> now, this is very profound. This helps me answer emails. People want symptom relief. Cast the demon out of me. Get the confusion out of my mind. Break the curse over me. And they email me thinking I'm a shaman. That's my term, not theirs. And when I tell them about forgiveness of sins, 
they're gone. If you go from the domain of Satan to the domain of God's son Christ, it's always true that your sins are forgiven. 100% of the time. If your sins are not forgiven, you're still in the domain of darkness. Just go to any of these sections. Go to 1 John 1. Go to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Forgiveness of sins. So here's the man, lame. Sins are forgiven. So what did they do? Murmuring, right? What? Who's this? What is this about? So what did Jesus say? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me unpack that, meaning the reign of God has shown up. Arise, take up your bed and walk. We think we need the healing, which would be nice. But if you have forgiveness of sins, your healing is eternal. Another case, John 5. Oh boy, this is something. There's a guy waiting for the angel to stir the water, and this guy liked to complain. Somebody always gets there in front of me, blah, blah, blah. It's not fair. Life is unfair. When am I going to get in this water? So Jesus healed him. The guy kind of goes his way. What happened? Jesus found him later. And some people ask him, who did this? I don't know. He didn't even, he wasn't even thankful. What did Jesus say to him? Be careful lest something worse come upon you. What would be worse than being lame? Be lost for eternity. Another one. Lepers are cleansed. Go show yourself to the priest. Symptom relief. Problem's gone. Away they go. One of them comes back to give glory to God. Sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Oh, and I was just thinking about the woman that you had mentioned earlier with his visitation, washing his feet, kissing his feet. Um, and he had said her sins were forgiven, but she had known, um, shown much love because much had been forgiven. Yep. And that's a symptom of recognizing forgiveness. Yeah, the day of Overflowing with love. She recognized the day of visitation. Israel's leaders didn't. Hallelujah. I love the Bible. More. There's more. There's so much. Your sins are forgiven. The lepers are cleansed. The guy that says, I don't even care. You could be healed by Jesus and go to hell. But if your sins are forgiven, you're going to heaven. Your sins are forgiven. One of my favorite moments in being part of discernment and writing books, and when I was still healthy enough to fly around the country, one of my favorite moments was with Chris Roseborough, my Lutheran friend, and he had spent four days listening to the purpose-driven worldwide convention. And this were heady days, the place was packed, it buzzed with enthusiasm. My favorite moment. Chris Roseborough gets a meeting with 
Mr. Rick Warren. And Chris says this, I've been here for four days and heard hours and hours of discussion and lectures and stories. I have yet to hear about the forgiveness of sins. What do you have for the forgiveness of sins? Oh, nothing. Didn't say. How can you have a new reformation with no forgiveness of sins? What does that tell me? That this is not the domain of God. If you've gone from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God, you have forgiveness of sins. It's always tied to changing domains. Death to life, Satan to God, darkness to light. These are all ways of saying the same thing. Today on the face of the earth, there are two spiritual domains. Everyone's in the domain of darkness until and unless they come to Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. They're transferred according to Colossians 1, 13 and 14, into the domain of God. The kingdom of God is gaining residence or citizens, a better term, throughout church history. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to finish this one. I got one more slide here. See, 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. Here it says... In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped. So it wasn't just the Jews. It was the Gentiles attacking him. Here's another truth about these two domains. All right? 1 John 3, John says, using a word, It's used to describe people's reaction to miracles in Luke X. John says, do not be amazed, using a negated imperative. Stop being amazed that the world hates you. Why does the world hate you? What did you do to the world? You came to Christ. You came to Christ. They can't stand anything that's like that. They don't want to hear about it. They become angry and hateful. Why? Because they're, they're in the domain of Satan. They don't recognize the day of visitation, and they hate the light. Um, just to illustrate your point, uh, verse 22, Saul, Paul, proves that Jesus is the Christ. Yes. Very next verse, they're plotting to kill him. <laughs> yeah. And um, what I think that illustrates as well is there's a difference between proof and persuasion. You and I can prove that Jesus is the Christ, but it's God's role through the Holy Spirit to persuade unto salvation. We're mail carriers. God is responsible for helping them open and respond to the mail. It's amazing. The world hates just about anything that even seems Christian. Yeah. Well, let me give you what I saw this morning watching the news. I happened to be watching yesterday when the president spoke in that big airplane hangar. Well, the first lady gets up and reads the Lord's Prayer. Well, then 
the critics are coming out and saying, she's no Christian because she had to read it. <laughs> now, here's what I was talking to Brian earlier. I've been preaching for 45 years. I preached my first sermon in the fall of 1971. If I was on network TV doing the Lord's Prayer, I would read it. <laughs> you kidding me? I'd get up there, oh, well, uh, Lord. Bob, the accuser of plagiarizing the Bible. <laughs> you know, uh, well, so I was watching this debate. I find it very interesting. This morning, there was a lady on who was upset, and this is a political issue, but Miami is going to not, no longer be a, a sanctuary city. So they were interviewing a lady about that, and she gave her position on it. But then they asked, well, what did you think about this Lord's Prayer being read? And all of a sudden, this lady, did anybody else see this? She big smile came on her face, and she said, I'm a born-again Christian. That was great. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. She said, I'm a Christian. That was fantastic. (laughs) So this just goes on and on and on. Now, let me give you another implication. Being how there's two antithetical spiritual domains existing simultaneously on the same earth, the same geographical locations. Is there some reason why the church should have a message that appeals mostly to the ones who are in the domain of darkness? No. Just read John. If you change your message so much that the world doesn't hate you anymore, you're in the wrong domain. Is that saying... We don't want women, men, immigrants, anybody else to come like the woman into this religious meal and cry on Jesus' feet and find forgiveness. We want that. We preach the gospel every Sunday. Anybody can come and say, God, have mercy on me. Blind Bartimaeus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And maybe we won't even get treated right. The disciples... That was my very first sermon. I preached about blind Bartimaeus and Mark. His disciples are saying, quit bothering us. You know, we have an important religious parade going on here. Don't shout at us from the ditch. Jesus, all the more, Jesus, have mercy on me. And so God heals him. God will have mercy on all who call upon his name. And they'll receive forgiveness of sins. And there still is physical healing. But here's what we need to know from what it says. We may or may not receive physical healing, but we for sure will receive forgiveness of sins. And that's eternal. Does that make sense? Oh, I love the Bible. See, I knew we didn't need another PowerPoint for today. We had two verses here. What do you need? (laughs) Verse 23. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews...
to counsel to kill him. Fulfilled, I already talked about that. Oh, wait, I'm on to the next one. 24 and 25. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Here was a guy who was just wanting Stephen martyred. And now they want Saul dead because he converted. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Acts 9.16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus predicted suffering. Paul got it. This is so profound. This helps us understand the definition of the church. The church consists of those who are called from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to God, who have received forgiveness of sins, who are redeemed, who are forgiven, and will show forth the praises of God forever and ever. So I'm trying to consistently respond to the people looking for symptom relief by witnessing to them about the gospel. Interestingly, many people think they're a Christian because they've been to church. Or if I tell them specifically what the gospel is and I send that to them, they'll go, I know all of that, but what are you going to do about this demon? What about the gathering? Or the guy from Gerasenes? How come I call him Gathering? How's that, Gerasene? From Gerasene. What about him? He was in the worst possible condition. God totally healed him. But what's more important was he became a follower of Christ, and he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go and tell your people what great things God did for you. There was the gospel going to the Gentiles already in Luke. It's a preview of Acts in Luke 8. So, three minutes. As we mentioned last week, I'll just throw this up here again. I wrote an essay. I wrote an essay. It's on the CIC website. We do not know what cannot be known. Don't have a lot of time, but this has a lot of significance. Let me quote a verse here. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I've shown you several times. But look at 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man's praise will come from God. I have an axiom that I put in my notes. An axiom, did you take basic math in high school? What's an axiom? (laughs) Good answer. It's a truism. It's something like the transitive property. If 8 is bigger than 6 and 10 is bigger than 8, then 10 is bigger than 6. That's an axiom, transitive. I remember when I was studying math, 
in high school, our teacher said, because we were talking about football, we had beat one team, then we went to play somebody else, and it didn't work out the way we thought. Our teacher said the transitive property does not work in football. (laughs) Here's the axiom. Valid Christian ministry can never be dependent on what cannot be known. Say that again. Valid Christian ministry can never be dependent on what cannot be known. One of the things we don't know is the inner workings of the kingdom of darkness. It's unseen to us. We know what the Bible says about it. So people that are looking for a shaman are looking for secret things that God hasn't restored. I, I, that book, they, uh, Lonnie, thanks for that one book on cur- a couple of them. Bob Larson says that we might be under a curse that's from 700 years ago. So he has ministry based on what cannot be known. Do you know what curse came on you 700 years ago? No, nobody knows. It's hopeless. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for caring for us and helping us know forgiveness of sins. We thank you that we can gather as your flock in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.